Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, the lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange. We are running some online and in-person courses this year. So do check us out at tkex.org and also check out our Facebook discussion group on um, the Knowledge Exchange discussion group. I really should know the name of this discussion group considering I admin it, but the the joys of, of running uh, some support groups, some Facebook groups, and a podcast. And speaking of which, I'm joined today by a co-host of the Back Pain podcast, Rob Bevan. He's a Cairo and has been putting some awesome content for regular humans experiencing back pain and keen to dive into some topics of misinformation, how we can handle it as clinicians, how we can also communicate it and um, and navigate some of these challenging conversations with with patients, with clients, um, and also just a general chat about what is high value care in our musculoskeletal pain care setting. So Rob, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here. Amazing. And for those who don't know you and the question that we ask all our guests is what's your story? What's my story? So, um, as you mentioned, I am a chiropractor by background. Um, The reason I say by background is that's where I kind of trained. I might be quite different to what most people might consider a traditional chiropractor now, kind of evolved how I practice. But yeah, that's how I I graduated 11, 12 years ago now. Um, Worked in, I had an NHS contract, worked in the NHS for a few years and then wanted to set up my own practice. Long story, I wanted a, a multidisciplinary team where we had chiros, physios, osteos, um, you know, sports therapists, you know, doctors all kind of working together. And so kind of over the last eight years, that's what we kind of built. Um, so work in southwest of England in my practice there where I see patients. And when I'm not seeing patients, I'm usually doing something like this, which is kind of um, podcasting or, you know, writing blogs or doing Instagram, which, as you know, takes hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of time. Um, and yeah, we started a podcast called The Back Pain Podcast two, nearly two years ago. We've just done our 100th episode. And purely because we saw kind of a hole in the market for good quality evidence-based information for the general public. And, you know, there was so much out there for for clinicians and, you know, that and, and the medical side of it. But there wasn't really much out there for, you know, the, the lay person who was struggling with their back pain or, you know, has just been fed a series of, of BS, which, you know, they've got from YouTube. So we kind of just wanted to, yeah, set the ground straight, kind of get rid of some of the, the BS that's out there and just, yeah, set the record straight, really. You're doing incredible work. I actually, um, just before this podcast, I searched up back pain podcast and obviously yours came up, so well done on the SEOs and, and marketing and such. But then there were <laughs> some you. other very dubious ones with some interesting claims already in there. So I can really feel yeah. for the regular people out there who are suffering with back pain and the amount yeah. of BS they need to sift through at the start to then get to the real science-based, evidence-based, really helpful, useful content is, ah, it goes beyond words. Oh, it so, breaks me. It breaks me. <laughs> it really does. And um it's amazing. So, so 
generally it's for the lay person. Um, I've been guilty of listening it to myself yeah. as a clinician and generally don't have as much back pain. So as long as you're okay <laughs> with that and <laughs> for yeah, listeners. Yeah, I, I think, I think the feedback we've had from a lot of clinicians has been, it's really good to hear experts in an area talk as if they're talking to a patient. So, you know, if you're listening to, you know, a, a, you know, a spinal surgeon talking about how he explains, you know, a particular surgical technique, you know, or if you're listening to Derek Griffin talking about chronic pain or, you know, a wealth of experts that we've had on the show talking as if they would be talking to a patient, everybody can learn from that, you know, and it's that, that is what we, you know, myself and Dave, the co-host have taken so much away from it is we've improved our communication and our kind of understanding of these topics, you know, immensely over the last two years. Yeah. To really simplify it and, and put it in, in their terms, I think in their language, we get caught up in our own kind of jargon, in our own discussions 100%. about perceptions and sensations and, and all that yeah. jazz. Yeah. 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 <laughs> totally with you. What, what might be some examples, I'm curious, based on it, on feedback and, and based on your kind of own social media bubble, say, um, mm. in, in terms of misinformation or uh, misconceptions that you see and read and, and hear? Yeah. So I think there's probably almost too many to kind of really even, even name, but, you know, probably the ones that I come across most are probably the ones that most people will almost be, be aware of. And that's, you know, things like, you know, as you probably, everybody listening would have had a patient say, you know, my posture, I'm worried about my posture or, you know, I've had some back pain recently. I know I've been sitting in a really shitty posture for the last few few weeks. You know, that's probably the biggest one I see, I see or probably almost every day. And if you simply search posture on Instagram or TikTok, all you'll see is videos for, you know, fix your posture and use this technique to undo your posture and fix desk posture and all these kind of, you know, clickbaity type titles about fixing and do this and, this is why you've got back pain because of X, you know, and it, and it, you know, it sells, you know, it's, it's sexy, it sounds good, but it's not really the, you know, the message that we're trying to put across. So that's probably the biggest one. You've then got the whole kind of core stability. Um, you know, my back is weak because I'm, because of my weak core and I'm not strong enough. So that's probably one which I myself used as well. And I'm not far from, you know, perfect when I'm talking about this but uh, I definitely use that as a uh, as a reason to blame on people's pain um, probably not too long ago you know definitely when I graduated so that's a big one and looking at core and then I think one which might be a bit more nuanced is probably around imaging um, you know MRI scans MRI reports um, you know oh this must be the reason for my pain and it's probably having that overall structural blame on someone's pain and I think that if we call that a misconception um you know you know people get an MRI scan and they go well, I've got 30 things that have come up on this MRI scan every single disc is bulging and every single disc is degenerate and oh and the surgeon says you know something awful like this is the worst spine I've ever seen in my life you know it's barely operable you know that type of thing or some horrible words so those I probably put that into the category of misconceptions because it's something which the patient obviously has taken away and isn't you know as we know at the moment factually correct really we can't blame pain on a on a single structure we know it's a lot quite a lot more complicated than that yeah and it's um listening to your mri related podcast that you can tell me that tell us the uh the actual title and all the podcast number I've, it's been there's been so many i can't i've lost count myself but there was I'll, amazing, I'll look it up. you keep talking <laughs> yeah it was a, amazing in terms of how you reframe it so going back to clinicians even listening along to to hear how you're able to simplify 
um, validate as well the need or the, the the desire to know what's underneath the surface and and to understand a little bit more about the nuances, the pros and cons. Yeah. I think you immediately from the get go, you did not dismiss MRIs or you didn't say that they they were you know useless and um, and super harmful from the start. You you mm. really went into the pros and cons and the nuances, which is so it was so valuable to hear as a clinician <laughs> yeah. to get some examples. Yeah, and I think it's the, you know, as, as we said at the podcast, you know, MRIs are such a valuable tool. They're brilliant. You know, no one would dismiss the use of MRIs. The problem with MRIs comes in the reporting, you know, and, and as, as we know, you know, there's nothing, an MRI is an inert thing. It doesn't cause back pain. It, it can't cause back pain. Um, it's about that reporting. And, you know, the problem with today's technology is an MRI is very good at showing everything that is in your spine, you know all these things which you know and if we only mri people with pain we only see things and we can that we can blame pain on what we don't do is mri people who don't have pain and go oh actually this annular tear you know 68% of people your age also have the same annular tear and most of those don't have any back pain so that can't be the only reason that you have pain there must be something else going on here as well um so yeah i so said the problem isn't in the mri the problem is in the reporting and now we we end up in a situation where particularly in the NHS, you know, unfortunately, and this is not putting blame on anyone, is we are up, I say we are, I don't work in the NHS currently, but a lot of people are very busy. There's, you know, understaffed, you know, there's not enough time, you know, and to, to, to pick apart an MRI and to explain the re complicated reasons for why someone has back pain, it takes hours, you know, hours and hours of consultation time. So if a GP has seven to 10 minutes to do it, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to do, you know, and I really feel for, you know, the GPs in a lot of these situations and I, you know, I don't abide by GP bashing in any way, shape or form, but uh, it's the, you know, it's a really important thing to get across. And, you know, when we're sending patients for MRIs, we should be setting them up with expectations. So, you know, I'm expecting it to show X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, these changes are common and normal, but that doesn't mean they can't be sore sometimes. You know, this is what I'm expecting. Telling patients that sometimes MRIs come back with loads of things, you know, which totally aren't relevant to what, what we're worried about. We're almost, you know, and you have to be careful about not diminishing it, not going to worry about that to some extent, but we're going to focus on X, Y, and Z. And that's really what we're kind of looking for on, a, on, on this. And an MRI doesn't diagnose you. An MRI is just used in collaboration with your medical history, your findings, your exam findings, the patient's history, you know, their story. And, you know, that's how we come up with the likely diagnosis most of the time. Yeah. Awesome. It's um, again, you are reframing it. You're even pre-framing it at the start to uh, maybe shape some of the expectations or at least have these discussions before the the dreaded report and before the, uh, the yeah. jargon that gets flown at them. And they're like, you know, what, what the fuck is this? I don't understand anything. And I, I must be really broken because there's lots of these jargony pathoanatomical terms I have oh. no idea about. And then they, they Google some of them and that leaves them yeah. even more confused. Yeah. I mean, I have an interesting story, a prime example of how we have to be careful with that imaging is I've mentioned this on the podcast a, a few times, and it was a, a lady who stepped off the curb um, and she had some, some back pain. And, you know, as most people know, you know, jarring, sudden, you know, stepping off the curb, back pain, risk for a, you know, suspected vertebral compression fracture. Saw a GP who said, yep, yeah, let's get some imaging, sent her for an X-ray. Um, she didn't hear anything. She rang up the GP surgery a couple of weeks later. Um, I spoke to a different GP who looked up her, her report and said, oh, yeah, I can see you've got some arthritis in your spine. 
And she went, oh, okay, brilliant. And he said, yeah, go, go, and, go and get some physiotherapy and that, that, that will help. So she came to the clinic and ended up seeing me. And uh, I said, what happened? And she said, oh, I stepped off a curb and it gave me arthritis. And so that's what she took away, you know, is that, you know, she, as far as she was aware, arthritis was something that you acquired like that, you know, acquired as an acute onset. And, and it was just that, you know, it's just purely because there was not enough time to explain it properly. And it was just an off the cuff comment. And, you know, that can have lifelong implications, you know, effectively for that patient. So it takes some careful management. Absolutely. Certainly. Um, she was shown maybe one of your podcasts along the way to save the, the this, this time. Right? To the podcast. Yes. Exactly. Oh. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm curious with the other two misconceptions that you, you've mentioned to so the posture and, um, and core stability. And I also mm. put my hand up humbly and say that I used to do both back in the day. Um, yeah. and I think it was a panacea for everyone with, with back pain. Um, yeah. what, what would you say? Um, cause I noticed you, you did validate the MRIs and you kind of pre-framed, we used a bit of reframing. Um, we, we went through like the pros and cons and we would in a consultation when it comes to those other two misconceptions, would there be some similarities, maybe some differences? What would you su- suggest when, um, say there's a patient in front of you and they mentioned their postures out of whack or, mm. um, someone told them that they need just a stronger yeah. core. Yeah. So, I mean, posture is a really tricky one because it is so ingrained in our society. You know, I think a lot of these ideas come around initially through kind of aesthetics and societal norms and kind of expectations. And it's based on looking attractive or looking more confident, you know, so sit up straight, put your shoulders back. And that does give off an air of confidence compared to when someone's kind of sat slumped, you know, kind of in in, in that position. So, as we said on, on an episode, if you're going for a first date or a job interview, maybe kind of sit up straight. So I think it's something which I will approach as with all of these myths and misconceptions is quite slowly and carefully. You know, if if I'm seeing someone on, you know, and within a minute they say, yeah, I've had some back pain. It's probably because of my posture. And if I jump in and say, no, that's that's probably not it. It is not going to help the conversation. So I'll kind of let them kind of understand it and kind of let them go through their history. And then I might kind of ask a few probing questions. You know, so what do you think is the problem? Why do you think this problem started? Why do you think you have pain and kind of these and kind of get their understanding of it? And if they then then kind of start going down the posture route, then you can think, okay, so what is good posture to you? Does it help if you sit up straight? Because equally, if someone is better when they sit up in a straight position, far from me to say, don't do that. And that's not a problem. So I've got no problem with people sitting however they want to. It's just about sitting comfortably. It's if they feel that, you know, slouching and, you know, they're holding themselves so stiff and so tight that's when I feel that it can be a bit of a problem. And if they're walking around, like they've got a rod stuck up their ass, you know, the whole time, shoulders pinned back, that military posture, and they're scared to move, and they've got that kind of, you know, fear around moving, then that's when it, that's when I will kind of intervene. And often say something around, you know, the problem isn't the position you're actually sat in, but it's the lack of movement. You know, any position that you sit in for eight hours isn't comfortable. You know, whether that's sit up, rise really tall, as an experiment, try sitting in perfect posture for eight hours at a time and see how comfortable it is. But I said, this is is tricky, you know, and, you know, and if it's, if patients are then interested, we can go down the line of that the, the poor posture doesn't actually relate to non-recovery and kind of improving the posture isn't associated with better outcomes. But, you know, I think that's, not for everyone it's something which you have to approach pretty slowly um but it's more around you know kind of getting them to understand that slouching is okay and if they feel better in that position that's fine to do and that movement is safe and you know i think 
who said it someone said you know that one of the most important things you can do is get your patient to slouch and that is so true and just getting him to move sometimes especially the holding himself so rigid is is really important so it's it's a it's a it's a tricky one to try and change and i think that i've done it wrong and i think as with all of these i've definitely done it wrong and i think that a lot of times patients will say they understand it and then they'll go away and then still sit like this perfectly for the rest of the day so it's something you know it's something something that is hard to change the the biggest the bigger question that comes out of that is those postural corrective devices um you know the things that's like a bra that kind of holds you back you know i probably get asked about those more so than asked about posture um you know oh should i buy one of these do you think it'll improve my posture and my staple answer is waste of money don't buy it you're better off doing some you know some seated rows or some prone flies or some deadlifts you know once or twice a day, once or twice a week. And that's going to be far better for improving your air quotes posture than taping yourself or holding yourself into that position for 12 hours a day. That's not going to be not going to be good for anything. It's like using the ankle brace only to run for 12 hours a day. It's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I wonder if they even had posture as an, an idea that they needed to fix in the first place. And then they kind of come across the postural corrective device through their newsfeed because it was, you know, targeted ads. They were talking about their back pain, yeah. their friends and, you know, uh, it, it was picked up and then, and now it's, it's an issue. Whereas before it wasn't really as much of an issue, but they, it's very sexy. It's sold. It's uh, yeah. marketed quite well. And maybe it's, it's, yeah. it's that, that also influences um, the, the need or the, yeah. these questions about posture. And it's simple messaging as well. It's, it, it, it's understandable. And when someone says, you know, Oh, sit up straight, you know, and I remember using analogies with patients, you know, your head is, head is 10 pounds imagine holding a 10 pound weight out here compared to holding it back against your chest and those awful kind of nasibic you know analogies that that i def I, I used in the past and i put my hands up and say i've used those in the past um you know it's not you know it makes sense and it's simple to understand you know and patients like simple and we like simple you know it makes you know we like explaining things in a simple manner and when a patient's nodding and going yeah 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 that makes total sense you know we get that kind of good feedback and that good feeling so we kind of continue to do it so you know pete i think the simplicity nature of that kind of postural model was quite sexy and it's quite easy to blame on pain same with same with the core stability it's easy to say yeah your spine's not very strong enough here's some exercises you know we didn't kind of twig but this guy's deadlifting 180 kilos he's not exactly weak in this position he's going to be stronger than you know mabel who's 85 you know she doesn't have any back pain you know <laughs> and so where's this kind of weak core analogy come from um so exactly that we like simple it's sexy and easy to explain to patients and what are some of the the challenges that you've experienced with communicating the the simple message whilst i imagine attempting to keep some nuance and some um caveats so that you know people yeah. don't run away and, and take away the, the first sentence that you said and uh, and miss out on the actual content or the actual helpful uh, piece of information. And, and it's also, uh, it might spread to their friends and family. And then, oh, yeah. you know, Rob told them that they'll be pain-free after not caring about their posture, as an example, or, yeah. or something along those lines, yeah. you know, it's so easy for our information to be um, misinterpreted. Oh, I hundred percent. And it's something which I now reflect on a lot more since kind of doing the podcast and since talking a lot more about communication is I will, or not every every single word I say, but not far off, you know, by thinking, how could this be interpreted? How could this be misinterpreted? What is the patient going to take away from this? The O'Sullivan test, you know, is, is a good way of just saying to a patient, when you get home and your partner, wife, kid, you know, dog, whatever, asks what's wrong with you, what are you going to say to them? What are you going to, what are you going to tell them? How are you going to explain this? 
Um, the other thing I like to do is give them kind of a summary at the end, you know, a bit of a takeaway. So today we've gone over X, Y, and Z. You know, if you don't listen to anything I've said today, this is what I want you to take home and give them kind of a, a two line to think about. Um, you know, that's quite a good one. And But I'm lucky that I'm in a private setting. I choose how long I spend with a patient. I choose when I see them again. But I think these approaches have to be done slowly and carefully. And I think you have to meet patients kind of where they're at. You know, if we jump straight in, trying to change opinions quickly, that's the fastest way to lose, lose a report. You know, you're effectively telling a patient that they're wrong and that they, you know, and it makes them feel a bit stupid for believing what they believed or seeing who they might have seen before. You know, I've, you know, the example I've used a lot is, you know, if I have a patient who, and this is something that might happen quite regularly to any chiropractors listening, they have a patient whose back's gone out, you know, and their back's gone out every six months and they've seen a chiropractor, their pelvis has gone out of place, they see a chiropractor, oh yeah, he pops it back in and I'm all good to go, that type of thing, you know, so, but my my guy's retired now, um, so I, was, I needed to do the same thing again. And so this guy's had, you know, successful treatment for 30 years and he's always been fine. It'd be, it would be completely idiotic of me to say, no, that's not how it works. I don't do that, you know, straight away. And you know, it's the fastest way to lose a patient. And if we're actually thinking long-term with this chap, you know, or, or girl, um, you know, do I, if I just go, nah, it doesn't work like that, he's going to go somewhere to get his fix and he's going to go somewhere else to get his that. And you lose that opportunity to, you know, bring them over to your side. That sounds like a horrible phrase, not in terms of, you know, just to, to educate them, I guess, to educate them on, on how these things actually work. So if you meet them where they're at, give them a little bit of what they want, obviously if it's appropriate to do so, and then you can then use that to gain the rapport, to change the narrative. Actually, it doesn't quite work the way we did that. And what do you think actually happens when we do this? Or the other question is, yeah, you know, if we could get the same outcome with a different different treatment, would you be happy with that? That's kind of something I like. And kind of acknowledging the patient's experiences, you know, not telling them they're wrong, but saying, yep, that's absolutely right. It can totally feel like it's out of alignment. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, and it's that giving them, telling them that they are right, but then just going, you know, giving coming in a different angle to kind of, uh, you know, start the education. But, you know, if someone's had these beliefs for years, decades, it, it's not going to happen overnight, you know, in, in the vast majority of cases, I, I guess. Man, there's so much there to, to, to re reflect back. I'm, I'm, you know, taking a step back using my reflective listening skills as we would with patients. And there was some great stuff there of thinking how the misinformation could, or the information that you give could be misinterpreted rather, um, having some summary at the end. Um, I love the point of it, it takes time. I think that's as clinicians and for clinicians that I, I mentor, that's something that we hold deeply. It's like, I need to fix this belief, like, it's a unhelpful, it's like a faulty movement in a way when we need to get rid of it or, or treat it and, and do it quickly. Cause otherwise um, they'll walk away and it's my fault that they have that belief. And it's oof, to, to think that it's our responsibility that, it, you know, with, and with one session, we can change that belief. I think it can be quite misguided. Um, and especially in the private setting where we, we have the opportunity to see them perhaps a little bit more than in most public settings. And we can, honor their experiences. We can validate their concerns. We can understand the why behind it because we just see the surface level. We may not have seen that relationship that that person has built with their previous clinician for decades even yeah. and the trust that they had with him and, and or him or her. And it's mm. maybe that that's one of the driving factors and they just felt safe to, to return and to 
and it worked. <laughs> I think to to deny their um, their, their need experience. for that treatment, yeah, it mm-hmm. denies their experience, and you, you like yeah. you said, you've you've lost them. Um, yeah, so much to to dive into there. I wonder with the what, what might be some of the the barriers in the maybe the private setting uh, of doing that. I'm thinking. Um, if you don't have as much autonomy in your workplace setting, that might be one of the things that comes to mind in terms of time um, or yeah. in terms of uh, opportunities for maybe cross referrals to other people, or you don't want to ruin a referral partner's kind of the relationship with them. Um, even though they've kind of told their patient, all these mm, maybe yeah. outdated beliefs, what pick, pick and choose. Rob, it's which, it's which really hard. And so that's really hard. I mean, mm. prime example, we, uh, you know, I get a lot of referrals from, um, a, 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 so I say some colleagues type thing, and the referral letters will come through and it will be, you know, full of outdated beliefs. And is that kind of, you know, I really, I think this patient would really benefit from some fascial release and some acupuncture or really benefit from, you know, some core strengthening because I think their core is a bit weak. It's that type of thing. And obviously this is, this isn't a letter from, you know, a very well qualified, you know, practitioner and you know kind of thinking oh this has been explained to the patient the patient's been cc'd into this letter as well so he's reading that and then you kind of a bit of a crossroads because then if you take core for example i can easily give them some core exercises but it's in how i explain it we know that core exercises are good for back pain in a way that any exercise is good good for back pain but is it necessary to increase to, to improve their core maybe not you know so if we're giving someone a bird dog or a dead bug or a glute bridge or a squat or a Jefferson curl doesn't matter. You know, if, if the patient thinks that's improving their strength, then that's fine really to me at the beginning. But then, as you said, as I said before, it's kind of gaining that trust with the patient, getting them on side and then understanding their beliefs and understanding where they're coming from. You know, if they're terrified that their core is weak because their mother had a weak core and she's had back pain for 40 years, then that's a very different conversation to have than someone who just thinks, oh, I just read it in men's health once that you get back pain if you had a weak core. And it's a very different conversation to have. So understanding where the patient's coming from and what they understand by a weak core or what they understand by spinal stability or a neutral spine, that's another big one, uh, you know, it's, it's really, really important. So, you know, coming, understanding their goals and expectations really. Yeah, and unpacking the the reasons why they they want the the treatment or core strengthening in the first place, and knowing that that approach will be very much individualized depending on those reasons, um, yeah. and and then looking at like where they got those messages from, and maybe as clinicians who do a bit of marketing or, or promote themselves uh, or run their own clinic, um, how can we be mindful of the messages that we yeah. kind of portray? Cause we do want to simplify it. We do want to use the patient's language and, and um, yeah. I'm sure with your experience, you've seen the benefits of, of simplifying it. Um, how yeah. can we, you know, keep it sexy and evidence-based? So that is, it's difficult full stop. You know, it's far easier to put out a, a sexy clickbaity title you know, fix your back pain. You know, as we said before, it's far easier to say that than to put out a post saying, back pain is actually pretty complicated. And there's quite a lot of reasons why you could have back pain. You know, that, that it is not a sexy, you know, people like these Daily Mail in the UK type headlines, you know, solve your back pain in three easy steps. You know, people would read that. So I think that if we're using social media as healthcare professionals, we have a responsibility 
to make sure we're putting out kind of correct and factual information. And I think that is, it should be taken as a given, you know, and I think that we should be held accountable to that. And, you know, that doesn't mean, you know, going on social media just to berate others, but it should be around, you know, we have the opportunity here to educate a wealth of people. And some, you know, some of the following that some people have on social media is huge. You know, look at people like Aaron Kubel and, and Adam Meekins. You know, I think that, you know, they're kind of the, there can't be that many healthcare professionals that are having, have as big a reach as they do. I think Aaron Kubel's on half a million people, you know, type thing, you know, there's huge amounts of people and they do a really good job of calling out misinformation. I don't think that approach is for everyone. And I think that, you know, they both do it very well. And I don't think, I don't think I could do that as well. So we've kind of gone for a different approach, which is just constantly putting out good quality information hoping to drown out, you know, all of the bullshit, basically that, that, that being the idea, I'm, I, I kind of stick to the approach that no one, no one comes out clean in a shit fight, you know, so, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats, all those you know, general, general rubbishy analogies, but they were kind of true. So that's the approach we've gone for. And because we are primarily patient facing, whereas, you know, particularly Meekins is much more kind of clinician facing, um, you know, his audience, generally um you know we we've gone for you know we're not trying to confuse patients so we're just going to stick to putting out good quality information and educating patients and hopefully they can then make a right decision and if we become the go-to resource for you to send your patients to you know then that's really really good you know if the gp has a patient with spinal stenosis you know and he says yeah i've only got 10 minutes to talk to you about this however here's here's an hour-long episode yeah where they go into really good detail about spinal stenosis and cover all of the nuances for it that was kind of our goal and that was our kind of idea behind it but i think yeah just putting out simple quality information you know which has some simple takeaways simple exercises not over complicating stuff which is the big thing you know some patients like complicated you know going into depth about substance p and the inflammatory modules but you know that's few and far between really so keeping it simple is the first part really and and keeping posting regularly and often and you know showing who you are behind these posts as well patients like or you know general public like to see who you are you know if you're always just a a blank screen and some canva made images people don't know who they're talking to so i think that garners a bit more trust as well in a lot of uh, a lot of cases hmm. yeah bringing the the human back to the clinician kind of role i think we can hmm. be a, a bit um yeah, yeah impersonal yeah. right like the, the professional person with the lab coat and stethoscope yeah. and that's kind of the the patient versus clinician role that yeah. a lot of settings play and and play to so yeah, I think keeping it more human and and putting out the good information, as you mentioned, to to drown out the BS and hopefully use the algorithm to our advantage in some way. For good, exactly. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, and um, not not and it's the it's the challenging, isn't it? You know that and patients don't they don't care about arguing. It doesn't look good, and it doesn't make you know us look good. You know, if, if we do a podcast on why you shouldn't see this type of practitioner, you know, it, it's going to be confusing. There's going to be patients going. But I am seeing that type of practitioner. So what we're, you know, we try and go for is what to expect from a good quality healthcare consultation. And, you know, and then people will hopefully then go, oh, I didn't get any exercises. Maybe I should have reconsidered that, you know, and then they might, we want people to have these questions, but not be kind of confused or upset by it. So it is a difficult, difficult line to, to, to balance really. Yeah, absolutely. And through that process, you're kind of inoculating or preparing patients for what might be out there. I think, but you framed it in a very positive light. So again, you haven't um, called out any particular 
clinicians or professions or yeah. um, or ways of practice even it's uh it's more this is I don't get me wrong i would like to in a lot of cases <laughs> you like hold to, yourself back rob i'm sure I, yeah i'll save it for this one should i <laughs> um it, feel free but uh like it's it's more about preparing um patients and, and getting them to understand what they should expect i guess so so then they can spread yeah. the word and in, in in terms of the the positive outcomes that they yeah. would more likely um receive with, with with good quality high quality healthcare yeah we know that if, if if patients are is changing what what their expectation should be so you know we want patients to when they go and see you know an msk professional whatever that was that flavor of certificate is we know that they what what they should they be expecting they should be expecting to have a really good chat about their problems you know a really good in-depth conversation about how this started you know, with that healthcare practitioner, you know, not with a member of the team and then someone else comes in and does the treatment. It's, you know, it's that really good getting that rapport. You know, it's a screening for red flags. You know, our primary goal is to make sure that people are safe. You know, that's the, the most important thing that we do. That red flag screening, it's a thorough examination. It's understanding the patient's goals, their wants, their expectations. And then, you know, I mean, we get into the kind of the active versus passive. You know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, a fan of saying one or the other. It's generally meeting the patient kind of where they're at. But, you know, as I say to my patients and I say to on the podcast is, you know, I'm not a fan of someone only receiving passive care. You know, people going to someone who only ever does stuff to you to fix you, then, you know, consider consider some different options. You know, there should people should be giving you some things to do in your own time, you know, whoever that might be. And that might not be on that might be on, you know, on session one. Hopefully it is, but it might not be, you know, give someone a few a few opportunities to improve. But you know, we should be looking for for that as a basic standard of quality care. That's that's awesome. It's um again getting them to understand what they probably should be experiencing, and and then if not, uh, empowering them to ask questions. I think that's a the big one in consultations where again mm. they assume the passive patient role, and again the person may be doing very active based treatments at least on the outside, but when we're actually diving into it, they're, they're being told what to do in a very authoritarian way. They've been given specific cues and the patient feels like they have no say or no um, yeah. autonomy in the process. So I think podcasts like yours through keeping it positive allows them to be curious and, and, and speak up or ask just to inquire as to the, like the reasoning behind certain treatments or certain approaches. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it said being that, that goal driven, you know, if, if someone wanted to get back to golf, you know, it's important to understand why they want to get back to golf and, you know, what's stopping them from doing it at the moment. You know, if they can't rotate because they're getting back pain, you better hope you've given them some exercises around involving some rotation, you know, or, or encouraging them to do it or what happens when they do rotate or are they just scared of doing it? You know, a prime example, you know, we had a patient at the clinic the other day um, who had a discectomy and her surgeon told her not to twist you know, but didn't put any time limit on it. So 12 months down the line, she's not playing golf because she's scared of twisting. She's not putting a seatbelt on in the car. She's getting people to help her put a seatbelt on because she was told never to twist again. And it was just an offhand comment, you know, by someone that you know, did a procedure for her and she's not playing golf. So then what do we do? We get her twisting. We're saying, okay, what happens when you do twist? Oh, actually nothing happens. Oh, okay. Brilliant. So we need to load up that position a bit more and you get her doing some banded work and some just getting her gently swinging a golf club in the garden to improve some range of motion. But of course she's going to be stiff and tight because she hasn't done it in 12 months, you know? So it's understanding those goals and kind of unpacking it. And such a, an, 
absolute privilege to have that opportunity as clinicians to unpack that like experientially yeah. and in a safe context and with willingness and obviously consent. Uh, I feel like it would be very difficult to to do that in like an online kind of context where it's a kind of a, you know, just text message back and forth asking for advice. So, so what, how do you kind of, because mm. I know you, you run a, a very good Facebook support group for, which is again, patient facing. Um, yeah. how, how do you um, manage that and, and um, manage some of the, the influx of questions and, and there's like looking through a lot of the support groups and, and probably not, not so much yours, but a lot of ones that I've seen on Facebook, there's, uh, you know, a paragraph of someone's story and they're clearly suffering through their emotive language. And it's like, oh, there's so much to like, we, I feel overwhelmed in terms of where to start, where, how yeah. to start helping them. What, what, what would you suggest when, when you come across like the online support groups and yeah. It, it's really hard. And I think that I've learned a lot from, and the reason I joined, I initially joined a couple of Facebook groups was because I wanted to understand people who were, who were suffering sciatica, you know, and it's really opened up my eyes to, I say sciatica, back pain and sciatica, is to how much these people actually will suffer. And I think that, you know, we will often see people who are in a pretty bad way, but we don't fully understand the impact it's having on their life. And I think these support groups will, shine a light on that you know and that can be quite depressing you know but it really opens up that your eyes to actually you know people writing posts for 12 years I haven't you know I I haven't sat with my husband I haven't gone to a theme park I haven't you know picked up my children I haven't done all these type of things and it you know they put this in a Facebook post and if you're it kind of showed me that if you're not asking the right questions in a consult you know you don't really unpack a lot of this information so that was the, the first thing that I kind of did but yeah it's really hard to to you know we, you can't diagnose and treat and you know manage someone in a facebook group we generally will use it as an opportunity to um point them in the direction of some quality information so if someone's saying oh, i've just got my mri report back it shows i've got you know you know degenerative disc disease in all five of my lum- my my lower back discs or something you know the surgeon said there's nothing they can do for me you know we'll say yep yeah, you know and of course you have to acknowledge that you know i'm really sorry to hear this However, you know, I'd really recommend listening to this episode on degenerative disc disease. You know, hopefully that will provide some further information. Um, but, you know, the same way you would in a consult. It's not just about saying, no, you're wrong. You know, it doesn't quite work like that. I'm sure none of those things are actually the problem. It's about just pointing in the right direction. Or, you know, are you having, you know, do you have anything else who can help you? Are you currently seeing a physiotherapist? You know, let me know where you're located. I'll try and find someone lo- you know, local to you. And that works quite well. And that's one of the reasons we set up our kind of provide a network, which we have on our website where, you know, we'll direct people, you know, on the website to say, yeah, you know, these are good quality evidence-based MSK clinicians of whatever flavor they are, whether that's a surgeon, you know, sports rehabilitator, you know, sports master therapist, these are all tried and trusted people who aren't going to BS you, who aren't going to sell you a treatment plan of 36 treatments, you know, and tell you that, you know, you need their care for life. They're going to be, you know, promotion of active management you know and we're going to push people in that direction so that's kind of the way we do it um people ask about questions you know kind of around you know should i be doing it should i be doing why and those are kind of fairly simple questions to answer you know is it okay to play rugby with with arthritis that type of thing you can simply say you know does it hurt you know are you seeing anyone can you ask them you know but it's, it's it's hard to get the information right it's hard to cross that line between how much medical advice you're providing online you know, and, you know, how much you covered for doing that as well. So we have to kind of put a lot of caveats on what we say a lot of the time. Yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's interesting how um, for some people, a Facebook support group 
provides that safety for them to express what they didn't even express to their healthcare provider. I think that, that says a lot in there. And I love that you you can learn what kind of questions to ask about how it's affecting and impacting their life. And there's some really personal kind of stories that they share yeah. on in a public uh, forum. So I think um, having the opportunity to, to direct them towards more helpful information or yeah. um, providers that you trust and, and can, can vouch for, I think that's, that's the step forward um, rather than trying to kind of consult through a, a comment yeah. section in a public forum. Yeah. And, and quarter quine is a big one. Um, mm. you know, a lot of people will be, you know, aware of the kind of the warning signs of something like quarter quina, And then you'll see a post in the Facebook group saying, Oh, my, my physio asked me, you know, if I had any numbness or, you know, sad anesthesia or, you know, numbness in my genitals, whatever it is, I've now got some of this, what should I do about it? And that's a good opportunity to say, you know, in the UK, ring 111, go to A&E, you know, and you can kind of back that, back that up, you know, and you can kind of put your authority on it and say, if you're in my clinic, I would send you to A&E now, you know, that type of thing. And that kind of, you know, potentially, you know, can pick up some serious cases. So that, that that's pretty good. Um, good for all, you know, I direct them in the, you know, if people are unsure, you know, we have a, you know, a 111 in, in the NHS where you can ring 111 on your phone and you can, you know, it's like an online kind of not quite 999 but they will direct you to an online gp or tell you to go to a e if you need to like a bit of a, a phone triage service and that can be very good or i direct them to our quarter acquiner episode you know my you know some people will get asked questions about sexual dysfunction and you know numbness around the genitals but have no idea why and they'll come back and join a facebook group and say why was a physio interested in you know whether they had any numbness around my bum you know that type of thing you can say oh actually it's because of this rare condition for more information check out our episode, you know, number, whatever it is with Rob Tyre on, on quarter aquinas syndrome. Um, you know, it's a really important thing to, to stay alert, so, uh, alert for. So it's, it's an education tool really. And, you know, and I think a lot of people, I think we've got, you know, over 4,000 patients in, I say patients, 4,000 people, you know, in that, in that group now. So there's a lot of good quality information. And you're harnessing the the power of community as well. You're because you're, people can observe and see um, how you respond and and the information there. So they might have had that question themselves in the in their back the back of their mind, but they didn't feel yeah. brave enough to to ask it on the forum. So I think it's it's uh it's yeah. helpful in in that sense. It builds some momentum for uh, future resources and frequently asked questions. And I'm yeah. definitely going to share some podcasts to my own kind of vip facebook group with with clients now that's it's awesome it's Thank um because it the it lasts the test of time i think it's it's helpful for clinicians uh, i'm thinking the clinicians who only have 20 minutes 30 minutes with someone and they're back to back and in a high kind of pressure scenario uh, or or clinic setting they don't have the time again yeah. so if we can save them time and just um uh, direct clinicians as well to more helpful yeah. information and that's a that's a way forward. Exactly. Yeah, totally agree. I think we, we can dive into you mentioned we've mentioned both before that like passive and ac- active kind of interventions, um, and there's <clears throat> endless debate. And we can maybe put on our clinician hats on now and and think of uh, how how we would define first of all um, what is active, what is passive, um, even what is high value care. And, and mm. you've put out some great examples already of what people should generally expect um, whilst yeah. respecting that everyone is, is quite individual and, and there's a lot of, a lot of nuance to say the least. Yeah. So I, I would define passive care as doing stuff to the patient. 
and active care being stuff that the patient does. And there's obviously going to be kind of some nuances and there's kind of some overlapping areas from that. But generally, passive care being, you know, if we call that manual therapy, you know, it's doing stuff to the patient. Now, I don't have a problem with that. You know, that's not a problem. The problem is the explanations of, of manual therapy or the, or, the, or the passive care. You know, we're not fixing things with our hands. We're not breaking down knots and adhesions. We're not relearning joints, you know. But, you know, we're, we're, it's a mechanical painkiller. We're giving a patient a, a temporary potentially reduction in pain to allow them to move a bit more. And that's the way I would explain it. You know, so if if you have to do some, you know, five, 10 minutes of some, of some soft tissue work, and if that drops their pain by, you know, 20%, brilliant. If, they can, if that means they can then improve their shoulder flexion and you can then get them loading it a little bit more with a bit more flexion, brilliant. You know, I've got no problem at all with that as well, you know really good example is I had a um, uh, a recent chap who was four weeks out post-shoulder dislocation um, and he was having he was, he was a significant amount of pain and I didn't do anything really passive with him at all. I did a lot of active stuff, you know, kind of generally trying to work on range of motion and getting some isometrics and, and scapular stuff. And after about kind of five weeks, he, he said, oh, you know, my last physio did a lot of a lot of massage type thing for my, my lower back. Do you think that would help? And I kind of said, you know, we can do a bit of massage today, you know, if you want to, I've got no problem with that, you know, and I wasn't anti it, but I hadn't kind of really utilized it initially in his first couple of sessions. And then I, and I did some soft tissue work and he literally thought I was, you know, God's gift to his shoulder. You know, he walked out and he rang me the next day and said, I slept so much better that night. And it kind of got me thinking, actually, maybe I was wrong in the first place, you know, but it was how I explained it, you know, and I kind of said, you know, this, I'm not break, you know, he was under the impression that it was going to break down some knots. And he said, Oh, my, you know, my shoulders are knotted. I just kind of want to get in there. But it comes down to how you explain it, you know. And I'm not telling him I'm breaking down some knots, you know, I'm telling him about it's just it feels nice, you know, massage feel nice. Uh, you know, it's not especially skillful. You know, I showed him that he can do this for himself, his wife can do it for himself. If he gets benefit, you know, anybody can do this, you know, and if it helps, by all means carry on. There's no downside to that. So that's quite a good example of where, you know. I'll utilize something like that as well. And then the other one being, if someone has got these beliefs, you know, that it's going to provide a certain benefit or, you know, they need to have their pelvis realigned, I will, you know, do a bit of what they want in order to kind of, you know, get them, get them on side. Um, and I think that is, that is evidence-based care. That is being patient-centered in, in kind of your management of patients. You know, um, you could throw an evidence-based textbook at them, you know, sometimes, and it's not, it's not going to help. It's about kind of understanding their beliefs and then utilizing their beliefs to get the best, to get the best out of that patient. So I think that is what kind of high value care is, as well as being kind of safe, honest, ethical, you know, not fear-mongering. You know, the language we use is so, so important, as we've said, we're in such a powerful position. The words we use have such a massive impact. You know, another example, and I've given a lot of examples today. Sorry about that. Another example, I have a, a, a patient who is now a friend um, and who saw, sadly, a, 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 a different type of practitioner who, who should I say, had four weeks of lower back pain um, after playing rugby. And he'd had a little bit, a bit of lower back pain, saw this other practitioner, took some x-rays. He said, oh, you know, you know, pulled some funny faces. Oh, you've got some pretty severe spinal arthritis. This guy's 28, by the way. Um, you know, I'd really recommend you stop playing rugby and doing any heavy lifting. Your spine shows, you know, you've got this severe arthritis. You know, a few discs are out. You know, um, you're probably going to need some lifelong care. You know, you know th that type of this kind of fear-mongering. And luckily enough, he kind of went, I don't know what this guy's on about. And he came to see me, this is before he was a friend, and said, 
yeah, I'd only had back pain for three weeks, but this guy said I need 1,700 quids worth of care. You know, it didn't quite make any sense to me. And luckily enough, he was able to see through that. So, you know, the language that you use, you know, I kind of just say, you know, your spine is strong and stable. You know, these changes which you have are, are very common, but they can still sometimes get sore. You know, the good news is being active and moving is really good for your back. You know, lifting and bending might be sore right now, but they're totally safe to do. Um, you know, relative rest, a bit of treatment, maybe some hands-on, maybe getting back to some exercises. You know, I've no doubt this will settle down. And then within two, three weeks, he's back playing rugby again, you know. And it's just that it, it can go so wrong if you get this wrong. Uh, and whether that practitioner believed what he said or whether he was just saying it for unscrupulous reasons i don't know i'm not going to going to prejudge i, <laughs> I think i would probably guess but that's a conversation for a different day <laughs> a day i guess but that level of being a high level that being a high level communicator is so so important and that is what we should spend our time doing you know we have to recognize that communication is far more important than you know 30 different massage qualifications we spend the next you know everything that we do is in the communication with patients you know and it's so so important and one simple line the patient can remember that for the next 30 years, you know, simply as some of the some examples we've given, given today. So, you know, thinking about what you say and thinking about how can this be taken wrong is so, so important. Yeah. Just like any content that we put out, how can it be misinterpreted and asking them what they take? I think, um, and also understanding that uh, we could do everything in terms of how we explain it, but they may still take something different away and that's just the the complexities of of human experiences and they have their own prior understandings and we we can't you know erase their memories of previous treatments or previous uh encounters interactions with healthcare providers um but there's a lot that we can do at the same time within our control Mm. um yeah i I love that and i think hearing more examples is is the way forward for clinicians to to like like we prepare patients for like what to expect and, and, and how to navigate these challenges. I think with the clinicians, it goes without saying same thing. If, if yeah. we can have more examples, the better. Yeah. I've got, I've got so many examples. I mean, another one that jumps to mind is a, a lady who was told age 16 or 17, she's a ballet dancer, um, that her back was weak and she should never pick up anything heavier than a bag of shopping. And, and I saw when she was age 67 and so for her, you know, 40, 50 years had never picked up anything heavier than a bag of shopping, you know, to the point when, when, when her daughter got older than one years old, she stopped picking her up because she thought she had a weak spine. So, you know, um, you know, changing that 40 year belief, you know, I, I don't think I ever will fully, but, you know, I, I see her son and her son was one who, who, who basically bullied her to coming to see me and say, you need to go and see Rob. And, you know, and getting her to kind of, you know, we got her simply sitting down, just touching her toes, you know, getting her to flex because she was one of those people who never bent over. You know, she was holding herself so rigid. So getting her to do some seated kind of just, um, uh, you know, seated deadlifts, touching the floor um, and then, you know, getting her some shopping bags and just getting her to like do a seated deadlift with a shopping bag and then getting her some roll downs and getting her to do it. And then what happens when, when you do that? Oh, actually, it doesn't actually hurt that much. You know, and then I saw her son once and she, I said, you know, oh, he said, I'm so glad you're seeing my mum. I walked into our living room the other day and she, and she was doing some toe touches, you know, that type of thing. He said, I've never seen her bend. I've never seen her lift anything her entire life, you know. So it's so, so important. I don't think I'll ever get her, you know, deadlifting 40, 50 kilos. And I probably, you know, I don't think she really needs to. But, you know, it, it's going to take some time to kind of change those beliefs. And, you know, she's not going to get better overnight. She's not going to unpack that overnight. But, you know, a year's time. 
maybe she's you know going for longer walks and climbing up the stairs and doing her shoes up you know without using her special shoe device to put her shoes on you know which is a, a win in my book absolutely it's um if I'm thinking now, if we were to to embody the practice of summarizing for the clinicians today, if if we were to look at like um, how to approach misinformation, like the in like you do in your podcast, as many yeah. sentences as you, as you like, I'm not going to give you a two sentence limit, but um, how how could we handle in general misinformation um, in person and online? Yeah. So I think it is slowly and carefully understanding where the patient's coming from, making them or being careful not to make them feel wrong or feel stupid. You know, their beliefs are valid and are correct as far as they're concerned. You know, no one wants to be told that they're wrong. If these, if their beliefs are totally tied up into their identity, you know, I'm a person who has a weak back. I'm a person who doesn't lift anything, you know, and we challenge those beliefs, we're challenging their identity. You know, so, you know, people take that very personally, you know, and especially if you're telling people they're wrong or something they believe for 30 years. So I think it has to be something that is, um, you know, done carefully and slowly um, and meeting them where they're at, especially when it comes to something like passive care or manual therapy, you know, all around their beliefs. You know, if someone hates going to the gym and you're suddenly telling them to do some kettlebell swings, you know, they might not going to be on side. But if you make that, you know, call it a different name or kind of, you know, call it we spoke with Adam Meekins on a different episode and what do we call deadlifts? You know, grandchild picker uppers, you know, call them that, call it that, you know, because as far as they're concerned, deadlifts are bad for your back. But, you know, if, if you use the analogy of picking up a grandchild, you know, it cha- it reframes it in their mind and makes it kind of okay. So, yeah, so I think it's just the being slowly, being carefully, you know, the, the slowly carefully approach, being a high level communicator. Um, yeah. And show them what they can do, not what they can't do. You know, that's the big message we use from the podcast. So good. That's it. Keep it positive and, and frame it as to their strengths, not their weaknesses, which is maybe what we've, we've been taught in university. So I think it's in, if we use the kind of compassionate lens for our colleagues and clinicians and even ourselves in the past, we've made many, 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 many mistakes about posture yeah. and, and kind of focusing on people's weaknesses and, and core strengthening needed for back pain. So I think, you are embodying that practice with what you do for your, mm. your clients. I can definitely tell. And, and also for us clinicians with the information you put out, Rob. So thank you very much for sharing your wisdom. I think, and um, no worries. I'd hardly call it wisdom, but thank you very much for having me. <laughs> Humility as well. Um, if, if people were keen to contact you and, and find out a bit more about what you do and, and your podcast, where can they find you? Of course. Yeah. So um, the podcast is on all platforms at the back pain podcast. Um, it might be at the Backpain Pod on Twitter just because we run out of characters, but yeah, you'll get the idea if you search the Backpain Podcast. Um, as for myself, I'm uh, Rob the Cairo um, across all, all platforms, Instagram and Twitter. I mainly just post some rants on Twitter occasionally, which you know kind of aren't that popular. Yeah, I'm a bit more quieter on Instagram, but yeah, the Backpain Podcast is generally where it's at. Um, if you're a clinician and you'd like to be listed on our list of evidence-based clinicians, um, you know, simply pop us an email: hello at the Backpain Podcast, or you can head on over to the Backpain and check out the provider map um, for yourselves. Amazing. Rob, thanks again for sharing all your experiences and love the examples and, and keen to share more podcast episodes with my own clients. And I'm sure you've inspired a lot of others to do the same. So That's really kind. Well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, thanks for getting up nice and early to talk to me <laughs> over in the UK. <laughs> of course. Thanks, Rob.